Hello and welcome to The Beautiful Game, a series exploring personal improvement and resiliency through interviews with soccer coaches from around the world. Beautiful Game is brought to you by Weasels FC, a brand for the tenacious, quick-witted, and occasionally underestimated. I am your host, Tony Niccolo. Join me as we learn to live, work, and play better with more confidence, resilience, and success. I'm here today with Amanda Ferranti, who's the founder and director of Ferranti Empowerment. She's a certified mental performance consultant. She studied psychology at Princeton. She has her master's in sports psychology. She was an accomplished athlete herself at Princeton, uh, helped lead them to a Final Four appearance in women's soccer, and played semi-professionally, and now coaches at a high youth level and works with both collegiate teams and individual athletes to improve their performance on and off the pitch. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we start off with a maybe a strange question. Our sponsor is a brand called Weasels FC. And so I like to ask what you think of the animal weasel. Well, it's <laughs> a funny comment. I guess that goes with the idea of being like fly. I've never thought about a weasel, someone who gets, goes after what they want, maybe, does it by any means necessary. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. They're certainly tenacious. One of the things that in your writing that I really appreciated was your positive connotation around aggression. As a coach, one of the things that I really try and do, particularly in North America, is get my players to a point where I'm not spending so much time coaching effort. We can really coach technique instead of just getting them to to try hard and finding that sort of when you step onto the pitch being able to harness your aggression and the way that you describe aggression is around the basic notion of communicating your needs and going after what you want and i think that that is consistent with sort of how a weasel behaves as well yeah and just to make a point aggression is somewhat different than feeling and being aggressive. So just want to make that clear. So having those feelings of being aggressive and going is like going after what you want and aggression might transition more to violent behavior. So just to be clear about the two differences in sports psychology, I think it's important to know where that line is. And how do you coach players to stay on the right side of that line? You know, we we see, you'll see a soccer game where one player, the phrase of the, the red mist descends and they move to violent behavior, whereas other athletes will have the same incident happen to them, but then are able to sort of channel their emotions and, and play even better as a result. How do you help players sort of find that balance? Yeah, I think uh, whether it's this emotion or any others, my main teaching tool is an emotional management plan. And that starts with identifying what the emotion or mix of emotions are that you're feeling. And so when it moves to aggression, there's probably some sort of anger or hostility in there as well mixed in. And so if an athlete can become aware of the specific emotions that they're feeling at a particular moment, then they would know how to move forward from them. So if one of them is anger or hostility, we would come up with, well, we would build awareness around what that means, what kind of thoughts they have with those and and what's underlying that. 
in terms of maybe expectations. Maybe they feel like, oh, I have to play my best all the time, which is very common. And if they make a mistake or a ref makes a bad call and they get triggered by that, we've had a full conversation on what goes on inside of their body. And we've come up with a plan on how to move forward. And moving forward entails transitioning this emotion or managing or moving it towards determination. So what is it that you really want? And I think you kind of mentioned that in the beginning with being aggressive. A lot of my training always comes back to that question of, well, what do you want? You know, and start with that and then take that further and decide what you will do in order to get that. And whatever you tell me you're going to do, it must be within your control. And that way you can get the athlete taking this fire of emotion and making it productive and focused. So we'll dive into a lot of the detail there a bit later. I want to know from your perspective, what was the the transition like for you from playing at a high level, both at Princeton and then semi-professionally into coaching? Well, that transition, there was a there was a big overlap when I started playing or when I continued playing out of college, I started studying sports psychology. Right. So, and actually I started in undergrad in psychology because I enjoyed psychology and (laughs) the missing piece was I took a year off from playing soccer and figuring out what I wanted to study. And I chose, I knew it was psychology. So I chose mental health and I did start my education in a master's in mental health. However, I also started playing and coaching and a professor recommended sports psychology, and I never heard of it. I didn't know this field existed. And immediately, like light bulb moment, that's the, that's the perfect career for me. It combines not only soccer, but sports. And I was a multi-sport athlete growing up and psychology. So I transferred into a master's in sport and exercise psychology, applied what I was learning to my playing environment now at the semi-pro level and started a private practice and started working one-on-one with kids and coaching teams. It was just an aha moment. It, It felt like all of a sudden my purpose in life was very clear and I went forward and I went for it. And I really, I haven't looked back since I've been going, trying to develop this not only a business, but helping evolve the field of sports psychology, because it is fairly new in in the world. And so there was obviously a professor who influenced you there. In your playing career, was there a a coach who taught you resilience or other mental skills? So what did they teach you and, and how did they do it? I think the best answer is probably my father. Not only is that where we get our character traits, resilience being one of them, from the earliest moments in life, you know, so you're, they're really largely built in the home because that's your first experiences. And the youngest of four kids, we're all athletes, highly kind of disciplined household in terms of being productive and kind of successful, you know, focusing on your studies, doing well in all areas. And my dad also was my coach at the youngest ages. So he was my soccer coach for a long time until we ended up getting a professional trainer. So I think that I built that resilience from the family unit. However, then when I, I went to my you know, top team, the one that was ranked, we were at that time at, in high school, we were ranked number one in the country. You know, we won to three national championships. 
that coach in particular, I think the environment he created challenged us all in a way that if you didn't have that resilience there at the core, you would have struggled. <laughs> right. So I think it's a combination of getting it from from early environments and then being an environment that fosters it, you know, makes you grow and push at it because again, character is a choice and it does need maintenance. Like you have to constantly demonstrate character for you to say, like, call myself resilient. That's a pretty consistent story that we hear that players and coaches who make it to high levels of success from a performance standpoint, they tend to thrive in an environment that's actually competitive. So Anson Dorrance talks about it as the cauldron at North Carolina, but that that cauldron atmosphere where top athletes, business people, they don't mind that competitiveness. In fact, they, they almost need it to thrive. Yeah, because at some point, it's just not fun <laughs> enough. Like It's not challenging enough. And we're all going after that joy, that pride, that happiness, excitement, satisfaction that comes with success and performance. And I think it becomes almost addicting. Like once you achieve something at one level, you want more and more. And so then you push yourself to newer limits. Talking about your own work, I saw you present with one of the players that you work with at the coaches convention in Baltimore this year. And what really fascinated me about that is that I feel like you definitely practice what you preach in that it seemed to me that she saw you more as a teammate, not as a subordinate or that you were her trainer, but that the relationship dynamics were one where, yeah, she was not your subordinate, but that you were clearly on her side and on her team. How do you make sure in your own work that you get to that level of trust and confidence in a way that you can help your the people that you work with develop? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because I think I play multiple roles at times that I have to be very mindful of. Most of my practice is one-on-one, which allows me to kind of work at my own, well, actually it's the client's own pace, whatever pace that they want to go at. And I think that's the key to this is to show up and to remember this is not about my agenda. This is about having some sort of structure that I've developed, but to allow the client to work at their pace. And that particular soccer player, she really dedicated her time to this. And this has been a long journey with her. And we went, and I think that was the key for me to be successful with her is we went at a very slow pace that she needed. And just to be there as a sounding board and not push her when she's not ready to, and when I say that, I mean, I don't mean physically, I mean, like to talk about things emotionally, not to give her all the answers. And I think sometimes as a coach on the soccer field, we want to tell our players the solutions. We want to give them the answers. And when you're in a more of a mental consulting kind of environment, it's not in your best interest to do that. You want to give them time. You want them to have this self-discovery because then it's more enduring and meaningful when they do. The other thing I think is important is I'm just super honest and real. And I I am vulnerable too. I, I try to find the balance between sharing my own stories and I don't pretend like I am some tough, like so like I have emotions, I'm very sensitive, and I have been able to show that to the kids that I work with, you know, in a professional way. And that really helps with trust to know that, hey. 
this is very normal what you're feeling. It's very human. It's very common in the sport environment. And, you know, I've been doing this long enough where I could give you some tips and help you out. And if it's not working, we're going to problem solve together to figure it out. You've spoken about whole person development and written about it. And I would say that it's popular amongst coaches in general right now, at least to talk about it, whether or not they actually do it in terms of focusing on player development and improvement and not just results and and developing a person, not just an athlete particularly in the most competitive academies where there's a recognition that most likely the players that they're working with aren't going to end up being professional soccer players but you know not everyone is necessarily good at that you know they've been trained as a coach and can run practices and and improve soccer technique and tactics very well what can coaches do to help their players and i would say more broadly what can managers do to help their employees sort of have a holistic view of their identity beyond either the work they're doing or the the game that they're playing yeah i think when you ask those two questions together i think the answer goes back to teaching coaches emotional management skills and i know i spend a lot of time talking about that. But as a coach myself, I recognize that my biggest hurdles were my own frustrations, you know, my own, even just any emotion, like embarrassment, like, hey, if my team's losing, I start to get like this anxiety on the sideline, what are the parents thinking? What are other, you know, what is the organization going to think that I'm working for? And I see that with some of the coaches that are very good at the X's and O's, they are good at the technical training and the environments I work, but I think it's, their own emotions that make it hard for them to connect with the individuals as a whole person there because they're looking at the job and their own performance at the job. And that kind of gets in the way of saying, wait a minute, this is a child, you know, I don't care how old they are, even like the college, like these are kids, they're young adults and they're looking for guidance and influence and they are a different generation now. So yes, even more important, But going back to that emotional management piece, there's a very simple way to teach that. Like, hey, let's all identify the common triggers for a coach and let's work on building how you're going to manage that in the moment. And I I will add a personal story is just what helped me was learning how to calm down. First of all, I recognize what my triggers are, learning how to calm down, believing in myself, like knowing that I've put in the work to, to be a good coach. and keeping in mind that it's not about me. I always go back to that. Like, this is not about me. I am just the person, the like a mentor, the influencer to help these kids achieve their goals. So if their goal is to play in college or to play pro, great, let's push it. If their goal is just to have a good day on the field and enjoy themselves, that's it too. And so in that same context, if a, if a coach or a, an employer is not really focused on, doesn't have that awareness, you talk about the fact that we cannot control the the people around us and that doesn't mean that we should move to a new team or move to a new job necessarily but that we can change the way that we interact and respond you phrase it as control the controllables and that external validation versus task mastery approach you know 
I think of it as you can't control whether or not you score a goal, but you can control whether you work on technique with both feet to improve your chances if you have a, an opportunity to score. What are the differences in mindset between people who focus on external validation versus task mastery? And in your experience, which, which one more likely leads to success? Yeah, the the mindset, that is a mindset, right? So if I have this mindset where I'm looking for external validation, like that means that I'm waiting for things outside of myself to validate how I feel, that completely changes your emotional experience. So you become dependent upon uncontrollable factors to make you feel good. And that I mean, even when I say it, that's a little dangerous, right? We want you to be able to have a little more control over your emotions. And and I want to address that too, because you don't necessarily have, you don't have full control over your emotions. I mean, we just feel things in response to triggers, right? Like I score a goal, my team wins, our team wins. Like I feel good about that. I make a mistake, I get yelled at. I don't feel good about that, right? I'm going to have emotions. It's how you manage them. Now, people who have an external view, which I think is a lot now, we and I believe social media has a lot to do with that. You're looking for the likes, the, the comments, the praise from your coach. And when you have that mindset, your emotions are at the hands of other people. Now, with the internal, you have more control over how you're going to feel because you're, you're giving yourself praise. You're saying, oh, I did that well. I was proud of this, or I'm grateful for this. So that's my concept of the well. And when you have that mentality, that mindset, you're going to feel positive emotions more often. Also, task focus, you can apply that soccer-wise specific, right? Building those characteristics of positioning, timing, speed, direction into your development, you're replacing, I guess, praise and criticism with actual information. And when you have thoughts that are filled with information, your emotions are stable and you're determined or focused or calm. Those mindsets, you also write about sort of Carol Dweck's work and fixed versus growth mindset. That's one example. If you've got an external versus task mastery mindset, I'm wondering if people can change their mindset and how they do it. Of course, I mean this—that's our whole field, right? <laughs> sports, sports psychology or psychology in general is based on this idea that you can, you are in control of what you choose to focus on, right? So that means you can learn it, and the first step to that is being aware in this education. So Carol Dweck did a lot of great work saying, okay, we have a collection of thoughts that are more indicative of an external or extrinsic type or fixed mindset. And then you have thoughts that are more in line with a growth mindset. So let's first be aware of where you fall, right? And let me teach you the specific maybe words like always, never, right, wrong, perfect failure. Those are very fixed mindset kind of words. I should have done this, like the shoulds, the what ifs. And once we can recognize those, then you also want to give them tools of what kind of thoughts are more progress and task oriented, which is what I kind of said, position the information words, focusing on character traits, right? Highlighting specific memories because memories are, they really happened. You're not saying I can do this. You're actually saying I did do it. I've done this before and I'm using my memories as tools. 
so yes, this is absolutely, this is exactly what we do. We train athletes to move into a growth mindset. And getting to that mindset requires overcoming your fears, right? Daniel Kahneman writes about it as in prospect theory as, you know, loss aversion that as humans were we're driven more by fear of failure than we are at the chance of success. And you talk about it in your writing about sustaining a, a healthy need for achievement, maintaining that desire to achieve rather than a need. In that work, you have to make mistakes. You have a specific process to help people overcome their fears. That's sort of a three-step process towards developing awareness how does that work? How can people develop awareness so that they can overcome their fears? Yeah. So I actually, I use worksheets and this process is one of the first that I do with these young athletes, because you're right. It's all about this fear of making a mistake, this fear of underperforming. And it's a series of questions, this awareness of like, what do, what do I fear? How strong is the fear? What is the worst thing that could happen if the fear were to come true? And then we get to the bottom and say, well, what would that feel like? So again, like I told you, I, I always come back to the emotions. So I explain it to athletes as if, okay, well, the fears that we have on the field um, or in sport are really the fear of feeling a certain emotion. It's the fear of that discomfort, right? And what that would mean for them. And I say, well, what would you do if you're afraid of heights? Well, you go up high. So I'm not going to make you feel this negative emotion. But what I am going to say is it's okay when that emotion happens to feel it because it's not permanent. It's temporary. And here's what we can do when you feel it. So I'm giving them power and trust in the fact that if and when I feel this emotion like disappointment or embarrassment, I know what to do. You know, I have a routine. I'm going to stop. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to remind myself of my character traits, my well, and I'm going to accept the reality of my situation. And that's really, that's what fears are, like accept the reality that we will make mistakes and accept the reality that it does not feel comfortable. And then, you know, obviously there's all these training sessions that I go through, but I think that's the awareness. And then we move forward and say, well, what is it you want? Like I tell you, go back to that. What is it you want? What is the reward? And we run through what's the best thing that would happen. What would that feel like? And I help the athletes see that you have a choice. Focus on what you're afraid of or focus on what you want. And after having had that long discussion on it, they get the point. They're like, okay, I'm going to focus on what I want. And remember, too, we're adults. So we're a little more set in our mindsets and our habits. But when you're talking to a young athlete, they understand what I'm saying very fast and they show change a lot quicker. So it sounds like a process of making it concrete, that building awareness is sort of the first step is to recognize your thoughts. What thoughts are you having? Recognizing whether there's a change in the emotions that you're feeling and then recognizing where there's a change in your physiological state or your palm sweaty? Do you have the symptoms of, of nervousness? Once you've sort of spent the time developing that awareness, then you need to harness it to perform. 
you've got a sort of techniques and strategy plan that you guide people through in terms of once they develop awareness, the next step is to be able to take action as a result of that awareness. How do people do that? Yeah. So just to get the more concrete recently, it's, it's five A's. So first is awareness. Then this action includes first acceptance, right? It's acceptance of whatever is happening right in front of you. Like I lost the ball. Yes. Or we lost the game or I just got hurt. It's facing your reality without bringing in the judgments and the opinions or the fears. And so that's where you brought in fear. Like fear is only one part of this. We just have a lot of thoughts to move forward. We have to accept what's happening, plain and simple, and accept what it feels like in the emotions. Then, because that is not pleasant and it's not, you know, might not be pleasant, then you need affirmation. Affirmation is remembering who you are as a person and as an athlete. So I use the character traits. You know, everyone that works with me, they have their top three character traits that they can call upon. And the well, the well is built over time. And it's a collection of memories, of performance outcomes, or just actual actions you did that you were proud of, things you're grateful for, moments you demonstrated character. And just remember something that you're proud of to help you boost that confidence. And then, so that's acceptance, affirmation, then aim. So decide what it is you want. And then action, which is the most important step, because that's going to be the list of controllable actions that you can take to get what you want. And you said this before, like the way I've developed this is tangible because it's all, it's all built on worksheets. Right. So the kids are writing this down. Actually, I work with some adults too. They're writing it down and they have it to call upon when they need it. And I, what I'm trying to develop is a language for emotions. And so writing it down helps people both from a recognition standpoint and then also from a recall standpoint when they're experiencing that emotion so that they can draw on those character traits and they can sort of remember the stories from their, from their well more readily. Yes. So that's also, and I have a partner, we started a new company called Compete Well and did publish our first workbook that really goes into this foundations where they're developing their well, they're writing it down, they're going through character, values, gratitude, and breathing routine. So this I'm super excited about because I know I've been doing, I've been working with individuals for about nine or 10 years now, and I really wanted something to take what I've developed and put it in the hands of, you know, a greater population without actually needing a mental coach there with you. So we're very excited to see if this works because it's exactly what you just said. We strongly believe in this writing it down and recall. These memories are all there for us. But, you know, what do we tend to remember after a game or it's the mistakes are just so much more apparent in our thoughts than all the things we did well. So this is just a routine to balance out, you know, what naturally happens for athletes. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I still remember I played semi-professionally and, and I was a goalkeeper. And I still remember a free kick where my footwork wasn't right and got scored on more than like the 10 other saves I made in that game. It's true. And and we can't, that's science. I mean, that's the brain. That's the way the brain works. You know, the amygdala. But like, there's not, I don't have to explain this too much to people because we just know it's true. You do a lot of work with generation z or z as we would say in canada and you talk about it as in terms of the i generation and and a lot of that impact of of social media encourages people to focus on external validation in terms of likes and comments and views in the spirit of accepting things as they are without judgment if you've got someone whose aim is to be TikTok famous. Instead of saying, no, social media is bad, you shouldn't want that. My impression is that there's a process that you would have them go through to achieve that aim and measure systematic progress. Using that example, can you sort of walk us through what, you know, if someone wants to be TikTok famous, what does it look like? I don't have TikTok. I mean, I, as a soccer coach, I could totally have you, but yeah, I know what you're asking. It would be to focus on anything within your control, right? And so if we compare it to, to sports, like having those followers is, is the same as winning games, right? So you can't control that, but that is the outcome that you ultimately want. Like I want to win the championship, right? So yes, it's important and I'm going to keep track of it, but I'm going to going to look to concentrate on more specific actions that I have control. So when I do talk about social media with some of my higher performers who do need to concentrate on that, it's about you, your character, and what message you want to send. So that's where you can focus your attention on like, what kind of content am I creating? How does it reflect who I am and what I want to show? I would probably have them come up with this list of character traits and what type of behaviors and what type of videos or pictures or images would show that and go from there, right? So that you have some sense of control over what you're doing. And if people like it, they like it. And if they don't, I would teach that athlete to let it go because maybe they're not a follower you want. I know it's it's sort of a funny example, but I think it's important because lots of people talk about the skills that children learn in sport as being transferable. And that's only true if they actually transfer, if they use them outside of their sport and they're they're able to apply them in real life. How do you help players transfer those mental skills that you, I mean, you focus on teaching them in a, in a sporting environment and in particular around sort of integrated practices with soccer, how do you help them transfer those those mental skills to their life? When I changed the way that I teach this, when I started to teach it in more more of an emotion language, like, hey, identifying emotions and having plans for them, in that conversation, we generally talk about this is a human emotion. It's not, you're not only feeling this emotion within the sport context. So simply asking like, when else would you feel this? And on that worksheet, we're listing all, we can list all triggers. It doesn't have to just be through sport. And we also get to the theme of that trigger, which could be, and I will say like what we're going through now, like social, you know, social disconnectedness is a big problem right now, you know, because we're not allowed to leave homes. And 
because it's an emotion language, it does transfer. But I will also say when you are coaching, and this is for coaches, and I know myself, yes, character is learned and, and things are developed in a sport environment, but you need to talk about it in order for it to really be learned and developed. And that transfer will happen at a greater level. Because we just expect that, oh, because I'm playing competitive sports, I'm going to, you know, learn and develop character. Well, that's not true. I mean, it depends what environment you are. And if coaches bring more conversation around it and start to help players, what I've been doing with my colleague now at uh, the university is being very intentional and specific about how we observe character traits, what they look like on the field and what, what they look like off the field. And that helps the transfer. But yeah, unless you really talk about it, you're right. You're, they're not necessarily going to transfer. So making the, the learning not just implicit, but making it explicit from a psychological standpoint helps it transfer better. And just making it more explicit in the sport context, right? Just saying like, okay, even if, I'm my, if my thoughts are not even on transferring it, just to get these this particular generation to perform better and concentrate better because concentration is a hard thing that we're seeing right now. And focus is one of the traits that we're working on with my team. So it's been very helpful to use that word and also bring just bring it into the drills and the activities we're doing and say, what does focus look like? So we are really being specific about this uh, sort of quote unquote mental or character training. You mentioned this briefly in terms of of what's going on in the world and i think we'd be remiss to not talk about it i mean lots of coaches that we talked to uh, were we were speaking about robustness and resilience and and mental ability in general but right now with covid-19 it's certainly a, a black swan event and lots of people make the argument that the first wave is sort of the physical health implication, but the second wave of the problem really is sort of a mental health challenge. And how can people in this time avoid going into shutdown mode? How can they build their well? How can they see opportunity? What do those skills look like? One example that I saw before you answer is the notion that it's actually a time where we can use technology and social media because the goal is not really social isolation, it's physical isolation, but social connectedness. Beyond that, what can we as a society and for individuals, what should we do to stay healthy and, and resilient in this time? Yeah, I think it's a loss. I mean, that's what a lot of people are talking about. And I think it's just the reality. There's there's a loss going on. And my thoughts initially went, because we're all experiencing it, I mean, a loss of work, you know, clients, is you can't go face to face. So loss of those freedoms. I tore two ACLs, one of them career ending. So that to me was a major loss, you know, in terms of sports. And I wrote a lot about it. I have done work on it and I work with my athletes on it. So I kind of look at this situation the same way that I'm facing it the same way. And that first step is to kind of talk about it and identify, well, what is it that I'm losing and what does this feel like so that you can move through the grieving process? Because I think everyone's going to go through a grieving process until we can get to that point of acceptance and peace within ourselves. So first, it's trying to have conversations, especially with your kids about this, talking about how they're feeling and, and helping them through what we understand to be a grieving process. 
know what they're losing, and then looking at that and say, well, what do I have control over and what do I don't? What don't I? So speaking with an athlete this morning, very young, I think they're nine years old and saying, okay, I don't have team practice right now, but I can still play the game, right? I can still play my sport. I can compete with my brother and being very creative. So there's two things I would say right now is very important, being organized and creating a schedule because that's the major thing that's been lost. I mean, we're not going to school and that we're not waking up and going to work and going through our routines and that kind of stuff really keeps you satisfied and motivated. So creating new a new organizational system within your household is going to be key structure as best as you can and being creative technology. It like this. Thank God we have technology right now. Let's get creative. When I just talked about setting up an iPad on a tripod and playing horse with his friend, like basketball, like I'll sh- I shoot from here, you shoot from there, like on their own nets or juggling contests through virtual means. I'm trying to be creative with like online classrooms. And so I don't know if that answers it. I think nobody really knows what's going to happen and just trying to stay focused one day at a time. So that goes back to our being in control of what you choose to focus on one day at a time. So staying concentrated on like today and like what you're going to run through tomorrow and the well, the well is like you mentioned, going to be very important. And for everyone listening, I mean, it's just a piece of paper, a couple of pieces of paper, you put it on the fridge, you, you create a notebook. Um, like I said, we've put it into a book and we're offering it. You're recording what you're proud of, like your small little joy is being satisfied by our day-to-day tasks. And maybe some some drills that you did in the backyard and some achievements. I know one player today was talking about she really wants to get 100 juggles. So she's she's using this time to, to achieve that task. And so every day she's going to highlight things she's proud of. That's critical because we need joy from more creative places right now. I think a lot of coaching as very similar to leading a company in terms of the sort of management practices and how you work with your employees and how you set goals and how you want to empower them to make their own decisions. And you've written about this in terms of that process around monitor progress through a process goal. So if you want to hit your sales numbers, measure the number of calls that you make each week instead of just the number. Encouraging clear roles and responsibilities, whether that's having clearly defined job objectives or making sure that a player understands that you don't have to score goals. We just need you to be able to defend. Praising controllables, which we've talked about a lot in terms of focusing on on the things that you can control, whether that's great effort today or you really noticed that you took the time to greet all of your teammates and coaches when you first arrived in terms of social ability. And then building that well, reviewing your past positive performances, you know, that running list. I think that a lot of people are talking about it from a gratitude standpoint, where when you wake up each morning, think about a couple of things that you're grateful for, it makes it easier to live a life of gratitude and be happier. But doing the same thing from a positive performance standpoint. The last one that you talk about is around visualizing. And this is what I 
want some help with from you. I think that that notion of building imagery skills is something that sort of gets talked about in the media. Success stories get talked about. You know, we hear about Oprah sort of visualizing that she wants to be a mogul and Oprah's a mogul. Or Carly Lloyd visualizing scoring a hat trick in the World Cup final and and she does it. And the way it gets the stories get told, it's almost like it's some sort of of magic. How can the average person build and and develop their imagery skills to to be able to achieve what they want in life? Yeah, so it's starting at a younger age, right? And I think my dad, he always used to say, dream about scoring goals before you go to bed. (laughs) And I did. But no, there are are more specific ways. And actually, technology can help because one tool I use is I'll video video my players when I'm in a one-on-one session and we'll watch the video, like quick, like slow motion, just because we're working on technique. And that act of watching yourself helps you recreate the image in your mind on your own, right? So the two key factors of visualization are vividness and controllability. So you could do any kind of simulated, I will, um, I will read through these scripts and their descriptions, right? They're kind of random descriptions and it helps athletes with that vividness and controllability. So that's one thing you can do. And it's like any other skill that you have is you have to practice there. So sitting closing your eyes and trying to create pictures. Now, the one thing I I will do first is I have a a worksheet as usual. And I ask the player to go through like their sights, sounds, sensations, what their muscles are feeling. And they, they really, they try to break down like they're telling a story, right? So they they break down what would be included in this image if we were to have like the most possible detail. And so when they write down all these factors, which emotions they'd be feeling, then we write out a story. So we hand write it going back to that connecting with your thoughts. So they, they write it out in a story form and then read it, visualize it. I read it to them. They visualize it. We can put that story onto a recording. And they listen to it in their on their headphones over and over again. That's specific training with me there. There are a lot of resources out there that guide you through imagery. And there's a lot of apps as well that include it with meditation. So I hope that answers it. It's really about repetition. It is a muscle. It's, it is a skill that can be developed. And when when you're doing it, think about being more vivid and having more control over the image. Awesome. Thanks, Amanda. I think that there are so many examples of ideas to help athletes play better, coaches deliver better sessions, but for people in general, particularly in these crazy times, to live a little bit better and be more successful. So I really appreciate your time. No, thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you for joining us today on The Beautiful Game. We hope you also have some new ideas and inspiration to live, work, and play better. Please subscribe to get future episodes. And you can join the conversation with your host, Tony Niccolo, on Twitter at WeaselsFC. FC.